Don't touch that dial. Don't move that mouse. It's Timboland at Timboland.net. The oral history, the crazy almanac of the years from 1946 to 1964. Those are the years that have been put aside by by a consensus of opinion uh, as the baby boomer years. And that's what we're all about here, baby boomers, at Timboland at Timboland.net. Okay, 1951 is the year. What the heck happened in 1951? One of our uh, reasons for doing this show is that it will show you how things that happened a long time ago, in this case, 66 years ago. A lot of things that happened in that year still have bearing today, okay? It's all a cause effect. Even though it's a long time ago, listen to this. The first color TV pictures broadcast from the Empire State Building happened in that year, 1951. Now, color TV, well, that's just uh, something we take for granted, right? Disc jockey Alan Freed coins the term rock and roll, a term still affecting our daily lives today. Another technological advance was the contraceptive pill, the first direct dial coast-to-coast telephone service in the United States. How about people born in the year 1951? Okay, how about it? Kirstie Alley, Phil Collins, actress Jane Seymour, actor Kurt Russell, Tony Danza, yo, who's in charge? Ace Fraley of KISS, the chess master Anatoly Karpov, an actor who is still working today, this guy's in every other film, from Sweden, Stellan Skarsgård, Lucy Arnaz, Ricky and Lucy had two kids, Ricky Jr. and Lucille. The great Robin Williams was born in 1951, and we'll be paying tribute to Robin a little bit later in the show. CSI fame, Mark Harmon, Michael Keaton, Mark Hamill. Sting was born in 51, as was John Mallenkamp. Beverly D'Angelo, who I must mention because, (laughs) I mean... Beverly D'Angelo, who would later marry Al Pacino, in the 70s, it seemed to me that every film she was in, she exposed her breasts. It was always for a good reason. It was part of the narrative, you see. Thank you, Beverly. And those are just some of the people who would go on to become very famous, born in the year 1951. Got a lot more 1951 stuff for you. Just stay tuned when we come back. An iconic audio track from the year 1951. And before we take a brief pause, I just have to, this is a plug. They are not a sponsor. They would make a great sponsor here because we're all about baby boomers and retirement. And we certainly have an an incredible interest in healthcare for our fellow baby boomers. I just want to say thank you to ARP, the American Association of Retired People. Great organization. And they came out with an ad that is running that I, I, I just got to give them kudos for it. They play a clip of President Trump saying during his campaign, I will not let anything happen to Social Security or Medicare. I think it was really great of ARP to capture that soundbite, put it on the air and remind everybody, including the president, hey, keep your word on these all too important programs for seniors. Medicare, and Social Security. Thank you, ARP. We'll be back. That's coming up on Timboland at Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. Baby boomers, listen carefully. Five years ago, I lost a great friend to hepatitis C. Ton Mastery was her name. She was a radio colleague of mine and a great person. If she had contracted the disease today, chances are she would have recovered. You see, hepatitis C, hep C, is a serious blood-borne disease that doesn't show up in some cases for years or even decades. But now it's starting to rear its ugly head among us baby boomers. We are seeing that millions of our generation are being affected. Many people don't know anything about it. As I said, people live with it for years or even decades with no symptoms. Left untreated, hep C can cause liver damage, liver cancer, and even death. So that's why it's important to get tested so you can know for sure. And if you do have hep C, it can be cured. For information on this vital development, go to hep C hope, all one word, hep C hope, H-E-P-C-H-O-P-E dot com. Once again, hep C hope 
Com. Don't put it off. If you have it, you can find out quickly and get it effectively treated. Do it for my friend, Ton, and for the millions who contracted Hep C before the cure was found. Most important, do it for yourself and your family. For a texted version of this public service announcement on Hep C, go to our Facebook page, Timbo Podcast. That's our Facebook handle, two words, Timbo Podcast. And read more about baby boomers and hepatitis C. Timboland, that's a timboland.net. Mmm, more tater tots. Mm. Timboland at timboland.net. Terry and Timbo McGovern here as we take a look at the year 1951. There are famous sound recordings that become icons. And what is this one called? This one is called The Shot Heard Round the World. That is correct, sir. This is the pennant race of 1951. Not taking any chances. Rockson without too big of a lead in second, but he'll be running like the wind of Thompson hits one. Racker throws. There's a left side. I can't be in the lead. The Giants win the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the very back of the left field stand. The Giants win the pennant. And they're going crazy. They're going crazy. Now, that insane man who was screaming, the Giants win the pennant, is who? (laughs) That would be Russ Hodges, the great Russ Hodges. I had the pleasure of working with Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons when I was a kid and first started working at KSFO. And I actually had quite a few nice conversations with Russ when he would drop by the station. What a privilege. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just, I, I had friends that would have given their eye teeth to be able to talk to Russ Hodges uh, for, for a minute. Uh, he, he, was, he was great. I mean, he was very funny, as was his partner, Lon Simmons. The Giants win the pennant by uh, Bobby Thompson's home run, defeating... Defeating the Dodgers 5-4. to four. And by the way, that, of course, was a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth at the Polo Grounds. Yeah. Okay, so this sets the stage then for the 1951 World Series. So we have the Giants and the... Uh, That would be the Yankees. Right, and how did that turn out? Well, unfortunately, after that great run that uh, the Giants had at the end of the year, at the end of the campaign, the, the Yankees just were rolling, rolling to another championship. They won the uh, World Series four games to two. Therefore, the name Damn Yankees. Yeah, the Damn Yankees. They uh, they won five uh, championship within a seven-year period. And uh, they were they were tremendous, but it looked like the the, the Giants could get the job done. Uh, they had a lack of pitching. Uh, now, did DiMaggio play in this World Series? Uh, Joe did play in this World Series, and then he retired. And then he hung up the those uh, fleet spikes of his. Yeah, that was his last year as the Yankees uh, center fielder. And there was a guy by the name of Mickey Mantle. Uh, ready to move right into that position, the incredible Mickey Mantle. And he did it fairly well. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did pretty well. Okay, let's tell our DiMaggio stories. Are you ready? I'll go first. Uh, the year is 1970. Uh, I'm a young guy working at KSFO. KSFO was a very, very community-based uh, radio station, great radio station. And uh, once a year, we would have a game uh, uh, we being KSFO, the All Stars, loosely named, uh, and we played for the Police Athletic League. And the team that we played every year uh, it was kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, there weren't that many teams, so we played Reno Barsacchini's Iron Horse, and that was the name of a bar on Maiden Lane that Reno Barsacchini owned and ran. And he was a very good friend of Joe DiMaggio's. And every once in a while, Joe would come in there and hang out. He didn't appear to be much of a drinker. But every once in a great while, you might see him sitting at a booth with Reno and his buddies. So I am pitching this game in 1970. We're at the Cow Palace, which is just what it sounds like, a big barn for livestock made of metal. The roof is metal. And I was pitching the first inning, and I got up. And I faced Jim Plunkett, 
the great football player from uh, from Stanford University, won all kind. I think he won the uh, the Heisman that year. He did win the Heisman, Terry. And Absolutely. he would go on to play for the Raiders, and he gets up to bat, and suddenly I feel like I'm on top of him, because he's he's huge, and you realize if he hits the ball directly to me, uh, I will I'll, I'll atomize, you know. <laughs> so I get one over the plate, which I'm sure was a gift, and uh, they called it a strike. And I think I might have even gotten away with another one, and Jim was just standing there kind of laughing at me. And then I let one go. My best pitch, I only had one, and I, and I threw it again, and he hit it so hard that I, I could hear it as it went by me. It sounded like a train. And then it went up, 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 and hit the inside tin wall of this cow palace and rattled around up there for what seemed like minutes. And people that was your knuckle curveball, wasn't it? It, it was. It was my curveball, but somehow he got it. He 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 really got the sweet spot, and he went around the bases. And as he crossed the plate, I I came in to kind of greet him, and I happened to glance over at DiMaggio, who was sitting uh, uh, on the bench with Reno and his buddies. And all I remember was DiMaggio looking at me with kind of a curious smile, and then he just looked <laughs> down at his feet and shook his head. <laughs> he was amazed at your your prowess as a as a knuckle curveball softball pitcher. Yeah, I guess he wondered where where was he when we needed him in the big leagues. Yeah, I'm sure that's what yeah, he was thinking. Yeah. Now you have a Joe DiMaggio story too. I do, and it's a it's a a treasure to me for sure. Uh, uh, many years ago, I'm going back around 19 and uh, 88. I was teaching tennis. And uh, at at uh, Funston Park, it was on Chestnut Street down in the beautiful Marina District. And after this lesson, I had the good fortune that day of uh, uh, teaching to a, a lovely young lady. And I offered to walk her home, of course, maybe have a little lunch on the way. And as we walked down Chestnut Street, I saw this it was like a beam of light or a halo or something coming towards me. And I looked, and I looked again, and my goodness, it was Jumpin' Joe DiMaggio. Joltin' Joe. And that was my first, uh, that was the first time I ever really saw Joe in person. And uh, I, I, I choked. I didn't know what to say, and I know he doesn't uh, like to be bothered. But he stopped. And he didn't look at me, but he looked at the young lady that I was escorting. And he kept looking at her. And I said, Mr. DiMaggio, and he just gave me a little pat on the shoulder. Like, in other words, back off here. Back off a little bit. And uh, he continued to admire her and gave me another pat and walked down the street. But he, that was it. That's all you got from Joe. He, you know, didn't... Uh, uh, definitely did not want to sign an autograph at that time, but it was it was a lot of fun. It was great a great pleasure in my life. All right, there's our DiMaggio stories. The brothers DiMaggio, Dom and Joe, and Terry and Timbo with their story. Let's move <laughs> on to another sports endeavor. What happened in the NFL that year? This is of course before well, the Super Bowl. They, we only had one league, the NFL. Uh, who did what to whom? The Los Angeles Rams beat the Cleveland Browns 24 to 17. And uh, again, Paul Brown took a defeat, and that was a, a big, big game for the Los Angeles Rams, big time. Yeah. And in uh, college uh, football, the Oklahoma Sooners, they won the national championship, and that would have been, I think, their third in a row, Terry. Yeah. The great Bud Wilkinson. NBA? NBA is really kind of new. It's only been around for a few years at this point, 1951. Yes, Terry. And in the NBA, uh, as you said, it was quite new. The Rochester Royals beat the New York Knickerbockers to win the championship, the NBA championship, four games to two. NHL. Stanley Cup went to who? Stanley Cup went to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, They skated... Past Montreal, four games to one. And uh, how about uh, how about boxing? Well, boxing, the uh, the great Jersey Joe Walcott, uh, KO'd uh, a journeyman type of fighter, but a very uh, very good fighter, Ezra Charles, uh, KO in the seventh round. All right, and finally, the uh, sport that you you're one of the few people I think on the face of the earth uh, who has perfected this game, your golf game. 
Oh, yes, Terry, it is. I, I don't really have a handicap except my clubs. But uh, on your the clubs, PGA, <laughs> on the PGA Ben Hogan uh, steamrolling again. He won the Masters and the U.S. Open in the year 1951, one of our greatest golfers of all times. People ask me what my handicap is. I say I'm left-handed. Is Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and... Uh, I do have left-handed clubs. Uh, Anthony and Brendan bought me uh, a set last year, and we got to get out there on the links and terrorize some people, okay? Sounds good, Terry. We're going to come back and talk about movies in 1951 and also uh, the music business, you know, what were the top songs of that year. And we're going to go out of this segment paying tribute to the guy that we had a couple of stories about, a guy that everybody idolized, including Paul Simon. <laughs> Sitting on a sofa on a Sunday afternoon Going to the candidates' debate Laugh about it, shout about it When you've got to choose Every way you look at it, you lose Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you What's that you say, Mrs. Robinson? Joe and Joe has left and gone away. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. We'll be back with more. Timboland at Timboland.net. The podcast for baby boomers. Hey, whoever the chick was who came up to the station and delivered the pizza, thank you. These are the mellow sounds of Timboland.net for baby boomers. Gary Sinise. Our veterans put everything on the line to protect our freedom. We may never be able to repay them for their sacrifice, but we can show them just how much we appreciate all they've done. Every day, hundreds of people just like you volunteer to help our veterans. You can help by simply sharing your time, lending a warm smile, a supportive hand, or a sympathetic ear to someone who needs it. Everyone can do something to make our veterans know how much we appreciate their service. What will you do? Timberland.net. <laughs> For baby boomers. Timboland at Timboland.net, podcast for baby boomers. We're looking at the top 10 movies of 1951. Let's start at number 10 with the International Movie Database list. Top films of 1951. What comes in at number 10? Ace in the Hole. Uh, let's read the description here. It says, a frustrated former big city journalist, now stuck working for an Albuquerque newspaper, explores a story about a man trapped in a cave-in. And it's, uh, it starred Kirk Douglas, Jan Sterling, Robert Arthur. Kirk Douglas, of course, a, a name that everybody knows. And he was very good in this. And the thing that I remember about the film, first of all, it was, it was directed by Billy Wilder, the greatest director we had at the time, certainly one of the top three or four. And he was great with realism. And they shot it on location. And in 1951, there weren't a heck of a lot of films being shot on location. And they found a, a, you know, a mine site or something. And uh, it was a good film. Alice, uh, Ace in the Hole. Coming in at number nine, A Christmas Carol. Remember that one? Oh, God, yes. I've seen it that, uh, maybe a thousand times on television. That's exactly right. Every Christmas, uh, they ran Alistair Sims as Ebenezer Scrooge in the classic Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And, of course, the great Jack Warner. Well, Jack Warner, you know, this is interesting. This is not the Jack Warner that ran Warner Brothers Studios. No, it's the great character actor, A great Jack character Warner. actor. Just want to make that distinction. Okay, oh, yes. what came in at number eight? Uh, Quo Vadis. 
which with means the beautiful, engaging Robert Taylor. Oh, he was he was he was almost too pretty, Robert Taylor. <laughs> he really was. That dog, yeah, he was a great looking dude. A fierce Roman commander becomes infatuated with a beautiful Christian. Oh, say no more. Nudge, nudge. Yeah, and Deborah Taylor, Kerr. Deborah Carr. Deborah Carr Deborah is Carr. the young sorry, Christian sorry. that he falls in love with. But uh, Quo Vadis, of course, means what in Latin? Uh, where are you going? Oh, where are you going? And if you prefer to use a, a more modern uh, Latin language, you could say, Hey, que pasa? Yeah, I, I thought on the sidelines we always go, Quo Vadis! Speed <laughs> it up, man. Where the hell We're are running you running out of time. Number seven. What do you have for number seven? Number seven, the uh, African queen with Bogey and Kate. I know this film inside and out. I've seen it so many times. It was, in many ways, the, the, the biggest departure success that Bogart had because he didn't play a, a you know invincible tough guy, private eye, didn't play a gangster. He was just this hapless middle-aged man who, who owned a putt-putt of a boat that he sailed down the river in Africa to Lake Victoria, and it's a story of, of a, he takes on uh, a woman who, who was trying to escape with him, and that, of course, was Catherine Hepburn. And the romance between those two people, the dynamics between those two people was awesome. Yeah, it was, Terry. And you know the way he framed that film and those shots? They were really, really uh, they were touching. They that were... was John Huston, of course. John Huston yes. and uh, and Bogie worked together a lot, and they drank together a tremendous lot. That explains the framing. Then. That that's why they <laughs> they were so good at framing. I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story about this. The film was shot on location in Africa. Katie Hepburn wrote years later that when they went to Africa. She was very concerned, uh, and as you recall, they're, they're in the water. She was right. very concerned about getting some kind of horrible disease from the water, mm -hmm. and rightfully so. So she drank only, for the entire shoot, she drank only bottled mineral water. Oh, my. Bogart and Houston, on the other uh, hand, drank only bourbon or scotch. <laughs> they drank no water whatsoever, and of course, the outcome... She gets deathly ill, and they're fine. The, 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 their intestines survive. Ah, oh, they're absolutely uh, uh, impenetrable. Here's situation. a great scene. This is the scene from African Queen that I love the most. It's when Charlie Arnott, who is uh, Bogart's character, wakes up to discover that Catherine Hepburn has thrown all of his gin bottles into the murky river. <laughs> And do you remember the leeches? Oh, yeah. Ooh, that was scary. And leeches are terrifying to yep. me. Yep. And Bogart was in the, in the water pushing the boat, and he suddenly realized something was on his skin, and he rips his shirt off, and he's covered with leeches. God damn, bloodsuckers. Yeah. I'm such a fan of this film, but I, before we go on to any of the other films of the year 1951, I want to play a little uh, excerpt of an interview on The Tonight Show. I think this was around 1987 between Johnny Carson and Lauren Bacall, who also went on location with Bogart, Hepburn, and Houston to film The African Queen. And he, it, it's sort of a retell of what we just talked about, but from the lips of herself, Lauren Bacall on the subject of being on location in 1951 in Africa for the African Queen. How long did that take? Yeah. How long were you down there? We were in the Belgian, well, then the Belgian Congo, now Zaire, yeah. for like eight weeks. And then we were in Uganda as well. And it was Is not cheap to go there. Yeah. Yes, my only trip, actually. It was not the in thing to do at all. I mean, that was before these safaris, these organized safaris uh, were planned that, right. that they do now. But it was... Um, they had to clear the jungle in order to, to build a camp for the entire company. Right. And uh, we all lived in these huts that were made out of bamboo and palm leaves with the Mother Earth for the floor. Not that many pictures in those days were made on location. No. Everything was done on the back no. lot. And I suppose being a realist uh, and being a documentary maker during the war, he wanted the realism of the actual well, location. We went to Mexico for treasure as well. Treasure, Sierra Madre. Bogie always said that... Uh, 
If there's an impossible location, Houston will find it. <laughs> and he did. I remember vividly the scenes uh, with the boat. The African queen was there. They're pushing it along with the leeches when they came out and had the leeches oh, yes. all over him. It was, were the temperatures what they looked like there? Was it that oppressive? Well, it was, ve it was very hot, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a kid then, so nothing bothered me, needless to say. Um, no, no, we're, uh, you're, was Bogart, your husband, and Houston, they, they drank a little in those days, didn't they? Well... <laughs> occasionally, had a little, occasionally had a little something to, to, to battle the weather? Oh, yeah. No, they always, they were, they were great friends, yeah. and they were also great drinking friends, and they loved their little highballs there, one or two, you know, yeah. uh, maybe three, <laughs> sometimes even four. Did you try, <laughs> now, did you try to keep up with that gang? I could. you were young. I mean, you know, yeah, all of a sudden no, you're thrown I was, into I was that. not a drinker. I mean, how yeah. I ever got mixed up with Bogart, yeah. I'll never know, That's because I, I, I hated to drink. I finally had to learn how to drink something in order to, to stay awake, right. you know, and keep those hours and do what they did. But I never could do it well. But they, what was fascinating is that with the drinking, uh, I don't know if it was because of the drinking, neither of them got sick. Mind you, I didn't get sick either. Yeah. I didn't drink. How but everybody Hedberg? else, Katie did. She, she, she got amoebic dysentery. Well, there's something to be said there, I guess, in certain circumstances to have a, yeah. a little push. A little nip. Yeah. Yes. Ed hasn't had a sick day in his life. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he is. Okay, so now we go to number six. What do you have? Yes, An American in Paris. Beautiful film. Yes, it was. And who from the city of Pittsburgh did, did it star? Well, I believe the dance master himself, Mr. Gene Kelly. Yeah, from our from old hometown, Gene Kelly. It was directed by Vincent Minnelli, and that, of course, would be Judy Garland's husband, Liza Minnelli's father. And the, the uh, love interest was none other than Leslie Caron. Oh, yes, great. She was a gorgeous girl. She was a, a very well-renowned ballet dancer when they recruited her for the films, I believe. Leslie Caron, of course, would uh, do very, very well later in the decade with Gigi, and she for a long time was uh, dating Mr. Frank Sinatra. My goodness. I didn't know that. Boy, Frank got around, didn't he? Oh, my God. That devil. <laughs> Number five, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah, and, uh, that was really, I guess, the first uh, impactful uh, science fiction film. Would you say it, it was up there in the top ones? Well, anyway. it's interesting because uh, number five, the, the number five film and the number one film in uh, 1951 are science fiction films oh that's right so and, we yeah, were science fiction films in the 50s became you know the day the earth stood still uh forbidden planet uh there were a lot of them outer space science fiction films don't forget this was the beginning of the big ufo scare but the day the earth stood still remember it starred a british actor named michael rennie yes i do very very well a i see great him now american actress by the name of patricia neal Mm-hmm. Academy Award winner. And a robot. Oh, yes. So that he that was the first robot uh, other than, what was his name in that? Uh, Archer D2. No, this goes, yeah, Ar this goes back to 1951. And his name was, and his name was Gort. Remember the big guy, the big uh, 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 robot with the, with the head and the visor? And if the visor came up, look out, Death Ray comes out. So he was Gort. The more human uh, visitor from the from the planet was uh, Michael Rennie's character was Klaatu, and there was an exchange in the film that really became very very impressed on the minds of young people. Why I'm not a hundred percent sure, but we all learned how to say Klaatu, Barato, Nikto. Here's Michael Rennie in a scene with Patricia Neal telling Patricia Neal that if anything happened to him, Klaatu, that, that she should go to Gort, <laughs> the robot, and... Well, here, listen. If anything should happen to me, you must go to Gort. You must say these words. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Klaatu. Klaatu. Who said... He can only say one thing, and I remember as kids, we memorized this, and we, we said it to each other forever. Clado Blarato Nictu. Oh, my. 
Klaatu's, Klaatu, would you fetch me an Iron City, please? Klaatu, Barato, Niktu. In fact, uh, one of uh, uh, Ringo Starr's early solo albums has a picture of that on the cover and and him saying Klaatu, Barato, Niktu. Mm-hmm. Man, that's beyond trivia. That's, that's minutia. But it yeah. came in at number five. Number four, Alfred Hitchcock and... Strangers on a Train. Yeah, with Farley Granger, a guy who... Uh, uh, Hitchcock liked this guy. He used him not only in Strangers on a Train, but on the uh, revolutionary film called Rope, R-O-P-E, which was one continuous shot. Uh, Hitchcock did that, and uh, it was a very bizarre film, but Farley Granger starred in that as well. In Stranger on a Train, he starred opposite a guy who was just wonderful, and I think he was kind of a, oh, in a way, an early Jack Lemmon. Good-looking guy, leading man, youngish, named Robert Walker. Oh, yes. Who sadly passed away early in his life. But this is a, a very good story. You like murder mysteries, you're going to like Strangers on a Train, Number four in 1951. And then number three. Number three, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yes. Walt Disney's brilliant animation of the, uh, the, uh, the great fairy tale, Alice in Wonderland. Number three, 1951, Alice in Wonderland. Okay. Now, number two. I want you to tell me what came in number two, okay? Wow. Well. It was a streetcar named Desire. Streetcar uh, named Desire. Of course, we're doing <laughs> impressions <laughs> from the wrong movies, but uh, that was Marlon Brando's big claim to fame. First on Broadway. That's right. And Stella, then, uh, Stella! What's yeah, Stella, Stella. And uh, this was uh, interesting because both the film and the Broadway play were pro- uh, directed by the great Ilya Kazan. A Streetcar Named Desire by my favorite playwright in the world, Tennessee Williams. My granddaughter, after this film, my granddaughter's name is Stella. That's right. You have a granddaughter named Stella. She's my baby. Now, I mentioned earlier there were two science fiction films in the top ten in 1951, according to IMDb, International Movie Database. The uh, one that came in at five was The Day the Earth Stood Still. What came in at number one? The Thing from Another World. Thing from Another World. We knew it just as The Thing. The Thing. That's what it was called when when it first came out. And this was one of those movies, especially one of those movies, where the guys stuck around and waited to see it again. We'd watch it maybe two, three times in the course of of, of a Saturday. And we knew all the scary parts. So we'd sit together, we'd see where the girls were, and of course they were first-time viewers of the film in each new audience. And we would jump out at them when when the scary moment came. And just, I think, how we didn't get thrown out, I have no idea. But it was, it was great fun to make the girls squeal. And you know what, Terry? There, don't forget that Mr. Dallin had a really nice part in that movie. James Arness. James Arness played the seven-foot carrot, the thing. They, they referred to him as <laughs> the monster as being similar to a carrot. Yes, yes. It was really weird. And now when you watch it, it's so predictable. You know, uh, John Carpenter did a remake of it with Kurt Russell. Yeah. 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 In the 70s. But this original film, I just want to say one last thing about it. The Thing from Another World. If you look uh, deeply into the, uh, you know, make a couple of clicks on this at the IMDb website, you will see that there are two very big names who did some sort of contributing to this movie. One was Howard Hawks. Jeez. The director. My goodness. And the other was, was the great writer, Ben Hecht, a front page story. They don't take credit, but for some reason or other, they were they were consulted or involved in this great, scary, very cheaply made film called The Thing from Another World. I think next we ought to take a look at music. What do you say? Yeah, let's go right to the sounds, Terry. We got some... Uh, Really, really mediocre stuff to talk about. <laughs> well, there's a great tease. Don't go away. Mediocrity <laughs> lies just ahead on Timboland at Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. You're listening to Timboland.net. 
the podcast for baby boomers. Every day, 5,000 kids under the age of 16 take their first drink. I was nine when I first had my first drink. Just sometimes I'm bored because I thought it was a cool thing to do. My mom just thought that I had the flu. We're drinking younger and we're smart about hiding it. That's what I told her. So don't believe everything we say. Check it out for yourself. Take underage drinking seriously. We're back with Timbo Land, the year 1951, and we are uh, going to immerse ourselves in mediocrity. <laughs> you, you, know, you and I are all the, we're, we're baby boomers who we were coming up, and there was a new music that was being freshly minted for us. So the old school sentimental ballads and corny songs for the older crowd just weren't our cup of tea. So that's why we call it mediocre. Let's yeah, take- we were fortunate enough, Terry. We we were right there when rock and roll began, and that got most of our attention, I would say. Number 10. Number 10, Terry. Tennessee Waltz, sung by Patti Page. Absolutely. Patti Page, a Tulsa girl, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was about as schmaltzy as you can get. Uh, number nine. Now, this guy, Mario Lanza. A really handsome young guy from South Philly, uh, an opera singer, uh, turned Hollywood movie star. And he came in number nine with Loveliest Night of the Year, Mario Lanza. You'll hear another song from him in the top ten coming up this year. Number eight. Number yeah. number yeah, eight, I, we got our I, buddy from right up the, uh, the river from where we live, Pittsburgh. He lived in Cannonsburg, his name was? Perry Como with the song If, which is kind of a cool little song. Well, in that case, let's listen to some of it. If they made me a king, I'd be but a slave to you. If I had everything, I'd still be a slave to you. Yeah, it is a cool song. Perry Como and If. Number seven. This marks the year of the emergence of what great singer who is still with us today. Yeah, Terry, a mere 90 years old, the magnificent Tony Benedetti. Yeah, and Tony has uh, not only the number seven hit song, Cold, Cold Heart, Tony Bennett, but he also has the number two hit song. But let's stay in order, okay? Okay. Yeah. Number six. Number six was uh, On Top of Old Smokey by a, a great old folk uh, uh, family, the Weavers. Oh, yeah, Pete Seeger and the Weavers. On right. top of old Smokey. Come on, kids, <laughs> sing along. Yeah. All covered with stuff. I lost my true lover. Unbelievable. Yeah. Number five. Now, here he is back at number five, Mario Lanza and Be My Love. Be my love. No, never right. I remember <laughs> being 19 that. years old, and my buddies still remember them in touch with uh, two of them: Toby McCain, Todd Rafferty, John Sweeney, and myself, and Tom England. How's that for a bunch of mix? Yeah. And we were in somebody's basement, and we got a hold of some beer, and we were. I, I, all I remember is getting absolutely stinko drunk, and the three of us. The drunker we got, the more we tried to sing along with this. Be My Love by Mario Lanza. Never even got near the notes, but we kept trying over and over again. <laughs> and finally, uh, God had mercy and we passed out. Number four, George Clooney's aunt. Come on in my house, in my house, come on in my house. <laughs> come on, come on. Just a silly, silly song by, by the great Rosemary Clooney. Number three, and we have showcased this uh, on another show, the incredible Les Paul and Mary Ford and their overdubbing. 
Yeah, of, this is how high the moon, which yeah. again, I like. I kind of like anything that Les Paul on Mary Ford did. Anything. Like a little cornball in me. Anything at all. I don't think they were called. He was, he was cutting edge, man. He invented a whole new way to play and record the guitar. He was way ahead of the curve. Number two. Again, Tony Benedette, Because of You. Because of you. I used to do an imitation of him. And it hasn't gotten any better. Well, don't do it again. There's a swag in my heart. <clears throat> Pardon me, Tony. Number one. Uh, number one by uh, a tremendous musician and singer. This is kind of his emergence song, Too Young. Yep. The great Nat King Cole. fact that he played the piano it was known as one of the most outstanding jazz pianos in America he came up out of uh, uh, out of St. Louis St. Louis Missouri mm-hmm. and he had a trio and he was just a phenomenal uh, jazz piano player ha- had a, a, a an incomparable left hand you know and then he decided to sing yeah that the trio, I believe, was a stand-up bass and a guitar, wasn't it, Terry? I believe Electric you're absolutely guitar. You are correct, sir. Thank you. That's it. The songs for 1951, not as mediocre as we had said, so we apologize. But it was a, it was a very, very important year for popular music in the United States of America. Indeed. And on Timboland at Timboland.net. The podcast for baby boomers. Coming up, our science guy on Timboland, uh, Dr. Rick Banghart, and we'll take a look at the outstanding accomplishment, accomplishments of 1951 in, in science. And also, before we wrap today, our tribute to uh, one of the greats who was born in the year 1951. We lost him, sadly, just a couple of years ago, the great Robin Williams. It's all here on Timboland. Don't you go away now. You're listening to Timboland at Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. Too bad about radio. Oh, what do you mean? Well, since television, you know, hardly anybody listens to radio anymore. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. There's a radio in use for every man, woman, and teenager in America. Really? Gee, I'd hate to think of them all turning them on at once. They do. Every morning. with you every night through the long commuter fight and in the morning with the old toast and mama lady who listens to radio no matter if it's summer winter spring or fall who listens to radio only 150 million people That was the great guru of radio, Stan Freeberg, and who listens to radio? Now, of course, the question is, who listens to podcasts? Well, guess what? 46 million Americans over the age of 12 now listen to podcasts on a monthly basis. That's 17% of the 12-plus U.S. population, up from 12% in 2013. Hey, that's a lot of people. They listen during their morning commute on the train, in their car while they're running, or at the gym, or while doing household chores. Who listens to podcasts? You do. And you're listening to Timboland on Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. Timboland. 
Timboland at Timboland.net. And I have not only uh, Timbo on the phone uh, with me, Terry McGovern, but I've also got our science guy, uh, Rick Banghart. And uh, I wanted to have the three of us together so we could talk about the scientific achievements of 1951. And in particular, what? Off the top. The coast-to-coast phone call, right? I like yeah. the idea of the, that to me is, uh, especially as the three of us are chatting together, yeah. each in our respective places. Well, we're all on the same coast, but uh, we've got this free conference call going on because we do this over Skype. And uh, I think it's an amazing thing. I, I No question about it. Amazing. Um, so what... Wh- what do you have to say about the first coast-to-coast phone call? Do, you, do we know anything about who it was between? <laughs> you know, I, no. don't re- I really don't recall. I was only six. So, you <laughs> so it, clear, it wasn't you. <laughs> and, and, it wasn't uh, and my excuse is I had yet to be conceived. Ah. Okay. So we're just going to – I'm going to do a pause here. And you think the first call was what, Tim? Well, I think it was Frank Sinatra uh, calling coast-to-coast to, uh, coast to, coast to Dino Martin uh, because he was a little short of cash. He was in a slump, if you'll recall. Oh, Frank was, yeah, time. and Dino was doing very well. Oh, Dino was making films with Jerry, and they were having a great time. But Frank was struggling, man. So you think that was the first phone call? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Rick has something with a little bit more uh, scientific credibility, and what is that? <laughs> well, I don't know that it's scientific credibility, but I can read from my screen here. And it says that uh, uh, on November 10th of 1951, two mayors made history by officially performing a trial and thereby establishing long-distance telephone do- calling, a uh, task we're familiar with today. According to a 1951 New York Times article, Mayor M. Leslie Denning of Englewood, New Jersey, spoke with Mayor Frank P. Osborne of Alameda, California, for 18 seconds from opposite sides of the country. My. Huh? We go long, we go deep on Timboland. That's right. (laughs) We do indeed. (laughs) Sometimes too long. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) Well, this whole bit's too long, so let's uh, tighten it up. It's easy, easy to tighten these things up. Okay, I'm going to uh, also, uh, just before we start up again. Okay, so we got that squared away. I, I want to look at something else that is not necessarily technology, uh, in the realm of technology, but a very important event in 1951 was the 22nd Amendment is ratified. Mm-hmm. And what did that mean, Timbo? Well, it means it was approved, of course, and uh, uh, I think, if I recall, it was uh, the, (laughs) hold on here, cut for a minute, Terry, let me start again. Do you want me to give the- Yeah, I want you to say, yeah, it, 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 uh, you know, regulated the length of turns. Okay. Yeah, it actually regulated the length of presidential terms to, uh, there was no length, to uh, eight years. Term limits were set, right, Rick? Right, well the, way I, well, the way the amendment actually reads, it just says that no person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice. Yeah. Uh, the, term, the term was already four years, and right. so uh, that, mean two, uh, that meant uh, two four-year terms, eight years was the limit, but Two times is the uh, most uh, number of times you can hold the office. Getting back to science for the year 1951. Uh, During January of 51, the United States government began nuclear bomb testing at a site in Nevada. So that's Mm. when all the Nevada testing uh, started. Oh, that explains the radiation and the people being a little crazy in that uh, desert there. Is that correct? (laughs) More than more than crazy, uh, it also <laughs> explains a lot of leukemia and brain tumors. Yes, it does. And in fact, uh, they're not so sure. There's been some speculation. John Wayne and his film company shot a lot in Nevada in, in the early 50s, in the 50s. And his son, Michael, even speculated at one point that uh, 
his father may have contracted, you know, an overdose of radiation from spending so much time there. It's speculation, of course, but definitely it made the place a very suspicious piece of real estate. Okay. Hey, the first through moon. Uh, oh, and, and while we were doing that in, in our own desert, the first thermonuclear weapon takes place at Anawitok Atoll or Atoll during Operation Greenhouse, they called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the, those uh, uh, blasts that happened on the various atolls and the, and the, the Bikini Atoll, I thought, was uh, involved. And uh, then, of course, is the no bikini at all. No, but no bikini at all. <laughs> no, this My was Anna Weetalk. That's a different atoll. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know what? Then, uh, let's see. I'm yeah. sorry. Pardon me. Something about uh, contraception in 51? Well, yeah, the, you know, surprise because uh, it was the first oral contraceptive, and I'd been uh, assured many times that oral doesn't require contraception. No, she just says no. Yeah, that's <laughs> usually the there. way that works. <laughs> get get out of here. Get out of there. Well, oral anyway. Uh, get out of here get, with yeah, that thing. Uh, the first oral contraceptive available in 1951, and of course that uh, eventually uh, spawned. The uh, sexual revolution. Was and here's that pill one that's... form, uh, Dr. Rick? Was that a pill? Was that the actual, uh, was it a lozenger or what the hell was it? <laughs> a lozenger? <laughs> a lozenger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you just had to suck on it. That's all. Okay. And ah. uh, <laughs> Now, was this related to it? Experimental breeder reactor, December 51. No, no. no. That's a whole different kind of breeder. That's a different kind of breeding that uh, happened then, where they, uh, they, yeah, that was the uh, nuclear reactor that uh, turned uranium into plutonium, and that's why it's called a breeder reactor because it uh, actually produces more fuel than it uses, which is an amazing kind of characteristic of a energy source. Anything else that we should know about in the year 1951? Realizing that you have no uh, recollection because it was a year before you were born. Uh, anything yeah. else you'd like a couple to say? of a uh, couple of big ones uh the first color television signal was uh broadcast uh from the empire state building in that year and univac the universal automatic computer was uh was developed in 1951 you know molly so, and i went to see uh, hidden figures i can't mm. tell you how much i enjoyed it well i can i enjoyed it a lot but it's the story of uh, young women who were uh, commissioned by NASA, uh, employed by them, uh, well, men and women, who were just absolutely wizards uh, with, uh, w- with computing, with computing numbers. And right. it concentrates on a specific group, uh, and they were called computers, these human beings. Yep. And there was a specific group that went through a, a particularly historically humiliating experience because they were young black women who had this computer skill. And of course they were segregated. And this is the story of how uh, these, these bright young women, and I, I shouldn't use the term bright. I had a woman once say to me, yeah, men call us bright when they mean intelligent. So I, I'll say intelligent straight out. They were wizards. But they were forced to work under just horrible conditions. And this is the story of one of the young black computers and the head of NASA at the time, a guy named Harrison, played by Kevin Costner. And it's wonderful. It's just a a compelling movie. You're really interested in it all the way through. And you're cheering at the end, which is what movies should do sometimes. Yeah. Terry, did it uh, spend any time showing how large the uh, original computer was, the Univac guys? There was as yes. big as a There's, I, I don't. I don't want to do a spoiler here, but there is a, a sort of uh, B story that runs through it that IBM is installing a, a computer in a room at NASA. And uh, they, they didn't have many rooms, so everybody can kind of peer in the window and see these guys in white suits from IBM. Constru- well, it, it has a lot of bugs to work out. And when they need it most, 
they have to turn to the humans. They have to turn back to the computer women and uh, get them to do the computations. So we see it. To answer your question, it's quite large. It looks like it's about, oh, maybe 10 to 12 feet long, maybe three to four feet wide. And mm -hmm. it looks like mm -hmm. uh, in, today it looks like a giant um, uh, Xerox machine. Pardon me yeah. for mixing my corporate names. But uh, yes, to answer your question, you see one of these things. And I guess Univac looked uh, even bigger. It was bigger. It was a, a Sperry Rand product uh, as opposed to an IBM product. Uh -huh. So just FYI. What was that movie with Catherine Hepper and Spencer Tracy where he comes into uh, the publishing house or, oh, or oh, newspaper oh, 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 and oh, is going to fit watched... it with a computer? It's a uh, good one. Yeah, it, it's not Pat and Mike. It's... Oh, son of a bitch. What's the name of that? We just literally watched it. Oh, my God. Hang on a second. Three? I think it was Desk Set. You are exactly correct, correct, sir. Desk Set. And, uh, yeah, he, he was a, the efficiency expert, uh, which has now been replaced by the euphemism consultant. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is uh, relying for all of his uh, analysis on, on a, a computer. I don't know well, what they call it in the movie, the brain or the computer or something like yeah, that. But it's yeah, gigantic. Yeah. Well, it's monstrous. It's gigantic, and it uh, uh, happens around uh, Christmas where they bring it in, and they are going to lay off all the women who uh, handle the research for this. Uh, it's a magazine or a newspaper. Yes. Isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah. But isn't so that, that an the interesting research, similarity uh, between the Hidden Figures premise as well? Yeah. 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 What was the first hard what, drive? We talked about the very first hard drive, and you yeah. said that weighed two tons. Yes, it did. <laughs> Needed to move, be moved with a forklift. Uh, uh, was sort of six feet by six, you know, a six feet cube kind of thing. Yeah, and what was uh, its capacity? It uh, it seems to me that it had a capacity uh, uh, close to uh, one megabyte. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and Dr. Rick... It, yeah. That was Sperry ran, not uh, IBM. Uh, the Univac was the first uh, hard drive was a was IBM. Okay, thank you. You're well, welcome. Not not a quiet year, a busy year. As all of these years between forty six and and sixty four that we concentrate on, it, there were no slack years. I mean, you could look at the Middle Ages in terms of scientific developments, and decades. Hundreds of years went by with no technological advancement of any kind, not of any significance. As I recall, it took about four years to actually go from a knife to a fork. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Tim. That's exactly <laughs> right. Boy, when you have a science brain like Timbo on the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a brain like a like a steel sieve. Like a, that's, uh, yeah. that's what our father used to say. I have a brain like a steel sieve. But uh, let's yeah. get back to this, uh, th this uh, absolute incredible geometric acceleration of discoveries, scientific discoveries, happening in these few brief years and beyond, of course, between... Uh, 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 46 to 64. And well, it has to do, Terry, it, I, I believe it has to do with the fact that we're, our technology is uh, feeding back on itself because our, our technology is around information storage and collection and, and retrieval, and that just uh, accelerates the pace at which we can make new discoveries. How about outer space? Yeah, that too. All happened, all for all happened in this period. Amazing, uh, guys. Well, all right, uh, Rick, we're going to let you get back to your test tubes and microscopes, and uh, uh, we're not really sure what, you, what it is you do in the lab because when you're finished talking to us on Skype, you immediately disconnect the camera, so we have no way of knowing what it is you're building over there. That's right, and, uh, and actually the little cap goes over the camera on my uh, uh, computer so that nobody possibly— well, the Russians, I suppose. Oh, well, the well Russians be. are watching everything. I, and I by the way, Putin, Putin is a big fan of Timboland. And, I, and, uh, and for good Putin. reason. <laughs> Molly and Chris, I have gotten— we have been I wanted so to ask Dr. Rick if he could possibly uh, develop a pill for Timbo for, to expand my mind. Yeah, I have some of those. Uh, the first one's free. Oh, I thought so. <laughs>
Molly and I have been so inundated, as everybody in, uh, in the world has, with the story of uh, Trump and Putin. And uh, we just love the word Putin. And it reminds me of how George Bush used to say G.W. used to say, he used to call him Putin. I talked to Putin. Putin's a nice fella. He's a, <laughs> I thought that our... was Will Farrell. Well, yeah, it was probably Will Farrell who, uh, who who capitalized on that. But Molly and I now use the word Putin as many times as we can during the day, A, in case he's listening, and B, just to be silly, as in, honey, what are you Putin on for dinner tonight? Well, it's not real funny, I guess, but we, we enjoy it. Well, it was a silent laugh. There it, was a si- it was an intellectual <laughs> nod from both yeah. of you. Yeah, yeah. We were, it was- well, I'm um, putting this whole thing aside, and Tim and okay. I will come back and talk about sports. If that's so, no, uh, let, me, let me change that. Well, actually, we're at the end of uh, 1951. It has been great fun to have uh, Tim along for our uh, visit with the science guy, Rick Banghart, at the end of the show. And let's yeah, see that if was we, fun, Dr. Rick. That was cool. Well, well, thank you. Let's see if we can get you guys to say something in unison. Are you ready? You are listening to... Timboland.net. Okay, let's see if you can do it in unison. Timboland at Timboland.net. Go. Timboland at Timboland.net. What happens to you, Tim? You go away. No, I'm I'm here now. Go one more time. Here we go. One, two, three, go. Timboland at Timboland.net. (laughs) <laughs> the podcast for baby boomers. That's right. <laughs> the podcast see if for we baby can boomers. Our clocks. Yeah, yeah, man. Take that, Putin. To wrap up the show, a personalized tribute to the great Robin Williams, born on this year, 1951. Timbo Land at Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. You listen when your body says, I'm tired or I'm hungry. Are you listening? Would you listen if your body said, I have pain and pressure in my abdomen. I feel bloated for no good reason. Or, I get too full too fast. I'm spotting, but I've already gone through menopause. Or, I have to go to the bathroom more often and more urgently than usual. These can be signs of a gynecologic cancer, like cervical, ovarian, uterine, vaginal, and vulvar cancers. Symptoms aren't the same for everyone. If your body says something may be wrong, please listen, learn the symptoms, and get the inside knowledge about gynecologic cancers. Call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Inside Knowledge Campaign and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Timboland at Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. Ah, the sound of cable cars. The sound of our hometown here at Timboland, San Francisco. Wrapping up Timboland on Timboland.net for the year 1951. We do the baby boomer years from 46 to 64. So here we are, 1951. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, one of the many famous people born this year was Robin Williams. And Robin Williams was a friend of mine. Uh, We were not close buddies. We didn't hang together. But we did uh, a considerable amount of work together, improvisational theater at the Comedy Store in L.A. in the late 70s. And when he got an opportunity in the early 90s to do a movie here in San Francisco uh, that he would produce with his wife, Marcia Garces, we, meaning all the people that Robin had hung with over the years in San Francisco, were asked to be in the movie. Uh, we had to audition, of course. I auditioned and got the part. Uh, in the very beginning, I play the part of Lou, the ADR director, the guy who does the, the, the lip syncing. Or in this case, since it was a bird that was being synced, uh, it was called beak syncing. <laughs> <laughs> That's Robin. And I spent the entire day, one day, in uh, 19, I guess, 91 it was, uh, at Fantasy Recording Studios in Berkeley, right across the bridge, 14 hours on the set with Robin Williams. And it was one of the most important days of my life. Uh, you can imagine. 
Uh, we had worked together on, on a couple of other things, and we would do. Uh, I would also be in his movie Nine Months a, a year or so later. But he was so generous. He was so wonderful. And he was such a good actor. And when you started this, a scene with him, it was just like, oh, wow. This is like driving a Rolls Royce, you know, because you know the guy you're dealing with can do anything. And he always did his best to make the other person look good. I got a little, I'm getting a little teary just talking about it. But I loved him very much as we all did. And I'll, I'll never forget the day he passed. It was uh, one of the darkest days of my life. But this was one of the brightest days of my life. And I play this, uh, I play Al, the audio director, during a recording session at the very beginning of Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, what a foul way for a bird to die. I don't want to get big cancer. No, my lungs are blackened. Here we go again. Oh. Cut, cut, cut. Oh. Roll it back. What are you doing? Daniel, that line is not in the script. Why did you add it? Well, I thought I should comment on the situation. What situation? The fact that Pudgy the Parrot has a cigarette shoved into his mouth is morally irresponsible. This is a cartoon, okay? This is not a friggin' Oprah Winfrey special. Lou, millions of kids see this cartoon. It's like sending each one of them a packet of cigarettes and saying, light up. You can't put words in Pudgy's mouth if his mouth isn't moving. What's well, voiceover? It's an interior monologue. Maybe even the voice of God. That's even better. Daniel, listen to me. This session is costing the studio thousands of dollars. Now, if you want a paycheck, you stick to the script. If you want to play Gandhi, then do it on somebody else's time. And then I've got to do what I've got to do. Actors. Thanks for the thrill of being in that show, Robin. And thank Marcia Garces, his then wife, for casting all of us. That's a wrap on Timbo at Timboland.net, the podcast for baby boomers. We're out of time. Got to close shop. I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. See you next time on Timboland. Timbo Land features Timbo and Terry McGovern along with the science guy Rick Banghart and our executive producer Regis Farrell.